house supporting him when it was at a very moment when Jesus was saying not to use a sword and he was a person who wanted to get rid of people. And it was a very strange quoting of Jesus. Um, we're about to hear Jesus' words and to reflect on what it means to stand with Jesus or perhaps to and more stand under his word. So I'm going to invite Simon up to open that for us. Before we begin today, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. I just pray today that uh, the words that I speak are yours and not mine. Amen. So my uh, sister graduated with a degree in law a little while ago, and uh, she's just here, so you can congratulate her after the service. But um, she's been working for the Immigration Tribunal as an associate to the Deputy President there. And I'm not really savvy enough to understand exactly the ins and outs of what she does, uh, but she's basically the gears that keep the whole thing running behind the scenes. And she's always got some sort of crazy story about what happens there. Um, She told me a story recently about a client who just calls up and bulldozes her way through each connection to get herself patched straight through to the courtroom in the middle of a hearing. And the phone rings in the middle of this hearing and, and somebody's whole livelihood hangs in the balance and it's some lady asking an inane question about paperwork. Like, surely she could have asked somebody else, but somehow she thinks it's appropriate to interrupt the judge in the middle of maybe the most important day of somebody's life. Now, I don't know who this woman was, but if I were in her shoes, I'd be terrified to interrupt a judge in the middle of what they do. Somebody with the power to completely change my life at a moment's notice, I'd probably want to get on their good side. But people are getting a bit more bold and presumptuous about this around this kind of stuff these days, I think. I saw a video the other day of a guy in traffic court in the States, and he was trying to get off a traffic ticket. But the judge said something that he didn't like, and he just began to berate the judge. He, he laid into him and started debasing his character. And as you might expect, the judge didn't really stand for it. I won't spoil the ending here, but he didn't get off the ticket. Now... I'm certainly not qualified to give legal advice, but I'm confident enough to tell you this. Don't do that. It won't end well for you. A judge will always turn your argument back onto you. And the stakes are way too high. They've had more experience, and they're more familiar with the law than you are. Never try to judge a judge. They'll judge you right back. And in John 5, we see the temple leaders approach Jesus with an accusation. They try to use their judicial power against him. They're trying to judge him. But Jesus responds in kind, acting in his authority as a judge, and he delivers this perfectly crafted response. See, it's a bad idea to judge a judge, but it is the worst idea to judge the Son of God. So a bit of background, if you weren't here last week, Jesus heals a man in Jerusalem during one of the festival periods, and and he happens to do this on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders, we don't know exactly who they are, they're not named, but they rebuke Jesus for working on the Sabbath. And Jesus replies that, quote, my father is always working to this very day, and I too am working. So they accuse him of blasphemy, they want to kill him. 
The claim against him is that he's, he says he's God's son, so he's claiming to be equal with God. And this is when Jesus starts his defense. And I don't think this is just allegory here. Jesus' speech in this section of John reads in a really similar way to what a legal defense might have sounded like in this part of the world in the first century. And I don't think that was a mistake. Jesus is playing to his audience, and they were making an accusation against him, so he makes a defense. Now, Judean trials were not dissimilar to trials we have today. They'd involve the standard elements we might expect, a response to the accusation, witnesses, and a verdict. And we're going to see how each of those elements plays out this morning. So verses 19 through 30, they outline his response to the accusation. And his opening mark to this accusation, remark to this accusation might not exactly hit home for a modern audience, but once we start to break it down a little bit, we, we see the frankly astonishing claim that Jesus makes. If he sees the, what the Father sees and does the works the Father does, he's equal to the Father. In other words, yes, guilty as charged. What you say I'm claiming is exactly what I'm claiming. Have a look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And the claim continues. He gives us this wonderful news that he is in control over life and death. The source of eternal life is in him. From verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And then we get the other side of the coin. He also has the power over judgment. Verse 22, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. See, there are severe implications from this incredible unity that Jesus is talking about. And it's really good news if you should find yourself on the side of Jesus and very difficult news to swallow if you find yourself in front of him, judging him. See, Jesus is the Son of God, which makes him equal to God, which makes him God. So if you're against him, you're against God. Have a look at verse 23. That all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. See, you shouldn't judge the Son of God. The stakes are too high. It's a matter of life and death. Now, I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to it soon. Uh, There's some really good news in there. He actually finishes his statement statement with some excellent news for us, but we'll continue to see how he crafts his defense first. So we're now in the second portion of Jesus' defense, and this is where we see him place his witnesses on the stand. And he begins with an opening statement that may strike us as very strange. Take a look at verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, that seems like a really strange thing for Jesus to say, doesn't it? Considering that he's 
Jesus, right? He is the truth. He's not supposed to say things like that. He seems like he's completely undercutting himself here. But if you look at it from the wider perspective, in that Jesus is forming an argument in the same kind of manner as the audience he's talking to, we can see that he's not discounting his own credibility at all. He's actually reinforcing it with more justification and evidence. Because that's how you construct a great argument. And he's doing it to engage with these people on their level. And he's actually clearly better at, the, better at it than they are. A lot of detractors of the church today think that faith just means believing in something without the proper evidence to back it up. But as Russ mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's more accurately described as trust. And it turns out that this trust is in somebody who was incredibly intelligent and more than willing to back up what he said with evidence. And he begins by placing John the Baptist on the stand. And it seems like Jesus is almost dismissive of John here, as if John's testimony isn't actually worth very much, which is strange because all we've heard about John so far in this book holds him up as kind of a hero of the faith. But Jesus is right because he always is. And this claim, this claim, because this claim like being the God's son could only be confirmed by God himself, not by a human witness. See from verse 33. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. Notice Jesus explains his process as he goes. He he doesn't need to use John's testimony to prove anything about himself, but he will for the benefit of the people he's talking to. See, Jesus actually choosing to engage in this argument at all is incredibly loving. He's presenting evidence to give the Jewish teachers an opportunity to understand. And he deliberately chooses a witness. He knows his accusers already liked and trusted, at least somewhat. He says so himself in verse 35. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So Jesus places John in front of his audience as this contemporary human witness. But then Jesus draws on a far greater witness than any other. In in fact, he draws on the only witness that could possibly be satisfactory in supporting such a claim, the Father himself. Have a look at verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. As we've journeyed through John over the past few months, we've seen the signs and miracles Jesus performs. And this is the exact thing to which they point. Jesus is saying explicitly that the incredible works that he's doing are there to serve as evidence to a much more important aspect of his character, his position as the Son. And it isn't Jesus' works alone that reveal God's testimony to us. It's all of God's words. All of the Holy Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, are describing the trajectory of God's wonderful plan that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. From verse 39... You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, 
but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. It's God's word. The people accusing him know the scriptures, most likely by memory, but they clearly don't understand them because they try to use what they think they know against Jesus without realizing that God's word is about him. You shouldn't judge the Son of God because he knows more than you do. See, sometimes I hear that the Old Testament isn't important or somehow because of what Jesus has done, it can be completely thrown out. But it's clear here that Jesus is claiming that it's God's testimony to what he would do through Christ. That's to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. So we may not have John the Baptist standing before us in the flesh for us uh, to testify for us right now. And we may not see healings and great signs happening for us week to week. But that doesn't matter. Because we've got the greatest witness statement to who Jesus truly is printed in books. That's the ultimate proof. God's word. And so we can now move on to the latter stage of the trial, the verdict. And this was where it starts to go really wrong for the Jewish leaders because Jesus turns the judgment right back onto them. From verse 42, we see Jesus turns upon them this extraordinary accusation. They're not following the golden rule, the Shema, the commandment that hinges all of the commandments in the books of Moses. They don't love God. Verse 42, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And this means that the judgment will come back upon them. The very thing they accuse Jesus of, blasphemy, disrespect of God in all his authority and power, is what they themselves are guilty of. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. For you can, how can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And he finally turns upon them the very scripture that they are trying to use to accuse him. Because he's more knowledgeable about its purpose than they are. See, you can know the words by memory, but unless you have them written on your heart, you won't understand them. In verse 45, but do not think I accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So Jesus completes his defense with this drastic turn to the offensive. In this incredible display of his authority and power as a judge, he uncovers the hearts of these people and displays them in the raw for all their own brokenness and failure. Don't judge a judge, because you yourself will be judged. Now, I think when we read these narratives in the Gospels, we're tempted to see ourselves in 
Jesus' position. Am I right? We, we tut away at the Jewish teachers. We, we ask ourselves, how can't they see what's going on? Because we think we are standing next to Jesus as his equals. As if we ourselves are also the judges. We, we stand in condemnation of all those who don't shape up. We, we love to put ourselves in the position of the judge. But I'd invite you to take a close look and open your heart for a moment and, and really think about if that's what Jesus is really inviting us to do when he says these words. Are you the judge or do you deserve judgment? I think what he's trying to get us to see is that we've judged him too. We do it all the time, don't we? Every time we choose not to follow him, to deliberately disobey his teaching, to willfully choose the boundaries of right and wrong for ourselves, which we do all the time, we judge Jesus. We make the conscious choice that what he says isn't as good as what we think. We judge the Son of God. Now, none of us here are screaming accusations in Jesus' direction like the temple leaders. But when you put yourself on equal standing with Jesus, believing that you have the same right to condemnation that he does, it stems from the same basic human problem. We're choosing ourselves over God. We're trying to say that we're equal with him. It might manifest in a different way for everybody, but ultimately there is something seriously wrong with our hearts. And if they were exposed we would find all that same brokenness and failure. So every harsh word Jesus said to the Jewish leaders could be equally applied to all of us sitting here today and standing, I don't escape it either. He's the son of God. He demands reverence from us, not to be standing next to him or above him, but to live under him as our king. But because of who we are, we don't give that to him. And we deserve his judgment. But the story doesn't end there. See, I, I promised really good news. Let's, for a moment, imagine that video about the parking ticket again, but with a different ending. This guy insults and mocks the judge in one of the loudest and most obnoxious displays of public defiance possible. And the judge could have responded by bringing down a hammer on this guy. He absolutely would have deserved it. But instead, the judge offers a word. He says, trust me, I've got a plan to fix this. And, and we see the plan played out in its totality as we reach the end of the gospel, and it's beautiful. But what's important is that we listen and we hear his words and see the evidence for what it is, because we need to understand. So I implore you, if you have ears today, let them hear. Let's go back to verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. 
See, we judged the judge. We judged the Son of God, and we were completely deserving of his punishment. All the harsh news he delivers in this passage, it applies to us. But Jesus gave us the gift of his sacrifice and his word to turn the tables so that we receive the benefit of all that good news he talked about. Because he loves us. Because of grace. It's a gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your words. Thank you so much that you gave us Jesus, uh, Son of God, who's the only one that could take our punishment for us. Um, We're sorry that we've fallen so drastically short, and we thank you for your rescue. Amen. We love to quote Jesus' words. We love to, some of his phrases are particularly well known. We don't judge, or you'll be judged. Um, they're in our cultural, um, they're in our culture even though sometimes people don't know that they're quoting Jesus. Um, but it's a great reminder in this passage that we need to actually have a different stance towards Jesus himself, which is to cling to him, to hold on to him, to be dependent on him. And especially as he speaks words of life, and and says, you trust my words and you can have eternal life. We need to cling to that. Let's stand and sing, cling to Christ.